first question, did fallen angels have the opportunity to repent? John 12, 32, I, if I'm lifted up, will draw all to myself. Is there a possibility for at least one out of the third of the fallen angels to be drawn to him after the cross, realizing the true nature of Jesus and the true nature of Satan? Just wondering. Thanks for your insights and for following the Spirit prompts in your ministry, unlike blessings. So my understanding is that by the time of the cross, uh, none of the angels had within them any faculties undamaged that would respond to truth and love. They had, when you persist in sin, you sear the conscience, harden the heart, warp the character. And if you persist long enough, you actually destroy within you the faculties that are sensitive to the movements of, of truth and love. And by the time of the cross, the, the fallen angels had burned out. They'd hardened themselves in rebellion, and, and there was nothing left. Uh, the Bible is actually silent on this question, as far as I know. I don't know anything in the Scripture that speaks directly to this or even gives a, an inference to this. Uh, Ellen White uh, wrote about these types of things in her writings, and, and it was early on in the rebellion in heaven when uh, the angels didn't understand what Lucifer was doing, that some of them that sympathized and initially sided with him uh, were persuaded to return. And she goes on to say that Satan himself, in the early phase before he was fully hardened, was given an opportunity to return and would have, would have been accepted back on the condition of repentance and submission. Mm. However, having persisted for a period of time, he hardened his heart beyond repentance, and uh, therefore there was nothing more God could do for him because God wins by truth and love. And if you destroy the faculties of tr- that respond to truth and love, then no amount of truth and love has any impact on winning people back. And so there came a point in time when Satan and his rebellious angels had hardened themselves beyond which any truth and love would have any further impact on them. And that for them was likely when they were cast out to the earth, that God, and we don't have a time frame about how long that war raged in heaven. And we know it was not a war of physical might. It was the polemos in Revelation chapter 12, which is a war of arguments. And that, that battle went back and forth as long as there was, in my view, some of the fallen angels still uh, open to truth and love to be, be restored to repentance and submission. But at some point, then they were cast out and no amount of truth would have any impact on them any longer, as far as I understand it. <clears throat> so, dear Common Reason Ministries, would you please explain from design law standpoint, first spiritual gifts 193, uh, and uh, he gives a, a small sections of this quote. I'm going to read it to you. And I'm going to say before I do this, this quote was given in two places. From This is from and a quote from Ellen White asking me to explain it. And this quote was given in two separate places. One is Spiritual Gifts 193. Another is Early Writings 276. They're very similar, but slightly different. And this is a really good design law quote, but it really requires a design law level of understanding or else this offends a lot of people. So this is not something I would ever really share with a newborn Christian or a newborn um, you know, Adventist because I, they would have, a, I think, a very difficult time with this. But we will first read it out of the spiritual gifts one, and then I will share with you the, the, the last sentence, which is different out of early writings. And this is, I saw that the slave master would have to answer for the soul of his slave, whom he has kept in ignorance. And all the sins of the slave will be visited upon the master. God cannot take the slave to heaven, who has been kept in ignorance and degradation, knowing nothing of God or the Bible, fearing nothing but the master's lash, and not holding to an elevated... Uh, elevated 
position as the master's brute beast, not holding so an elevated position as the master's brute beast. In other words, they were even below the master's beast. But he does, does the best thing he can for him and that, that a compassionate God can do. He lets him be as though he had not been, meaning he doesn't come up in either resurrection. While the master has to suffer the seven last plagues and then come up in the second resurrection and suffer the second most awful death, then the wrath of God will be appeased. And the same quote, almost word for word, except, and I'll read the last little bit, uh, endure the seven last plagues, then come up in the second resurrection and suffer the second most awful death, then the justice of God will be satisfied. The wrath of God be appeased, the justice of God be satisfied. Now, do you, now before I answer, do you see clear design law in this? This is a, an immense design law statement. Or do, are you saying, boy, that sounds like, uh, wow, arbitrary, punishing one person for somebody else. Uh, um, boy, uh, wrath, justice, peace, satisfied. Uh, are you hearing design law or something else? You hear a mix, though. I know. Yeah, so, so for me, it's, it's very straightforward design law. I mean, it's very clear. First, first and most important question, why can, and notice the, 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 the slave, it doesn't say anybody who was ever held a slave. That doesn't say that. It's very important you recognize that. It's the slave who was kept in abject ignorance and degradation, knowing nothing. There's nothing in nature or science that they learned about God or the Bible, had knew nothing but the master's lash, holding a position lower than a brute beast. Okay, so you have to actually read what's said there. A lot of people say slave. Oh, you mean all the slaves can't go? That's not what's being said. A slave. Because look at the New Testament. Isn't there discussions about a slave and, and a slave named, I think it's Onesimus, mm-hmm. who was clearly saved. He was saved as a slave. So this is not whether your status in some governmental system, your status was a slave, and if so, you can't be saved. Not at all. There's nothing to be a slave. In fact, you can take slavery out of it, put in just a person. God cannot take to heaven a person who has been kept in the ignorance and degradation under the control of another person. So this could be somebody, if you read about somebody who has been kidnapped and maybe as a child and kept in somebody's basement in today, this is not a legal slave status as a slave nation. This would be somebody committing a crime, objectively abusing them, crushing out any opportunity for any light to enter their heart and mind. You follow what I'm saying now? Yeah. Yeah. That's what's being described. Now, why can God not take that individual person to heaven? They have no basis. Because there's no individuality to take to heaven. There's a physical body, but there's no individuality. There's no person. There's a creature. There's a brute beast. This individual, this 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 human who was created in the image of God to become an individual in the image of God has been treated with such harshness and abuse that the image of God was crushed out of them and they were actually turned into functionally something beneath the beast. What's there for God to take to heaven? God didn't do this. And then all the sins that that person committed, if there were any sins that that person committed, go to the master. Why? 
because the master will have to take ownership over the abuse, the control, the perversity, and all the things that they taught them. And, and it was their teaching and their, and their um, obstruction of the truth that prevented the slave from ever experiencing salvation. And so that consequence, that burden will rest on him for what he did to the slave. That's what it's talking about. And he will realize, he will have the truth. And this is what I say, so somebody who molests kids, when the infinite truth of God's life-giving glory, infinite truth, penetrates the unsaved molester's reality when the fires of God's infinite life, love, and truth blaze free on earth, they will not just have awareness of the facts of what they did. They will have awareness of the truth of the pain, suffering, betrayal, heartache, damage, conflict, trauma that the people suffered at their hands. That's truth. That truth of the harm that they caused uh, will weigh in on them. It's theirs to own. And so the evil that was done to this person and what he did in his life because of it will weigh in on him. He'll have awareness of the struggles and the heartache and the misery and the choices made because they stem directly from his actions that he's never repented of and been healed from. The truth will weigh in on him. His own corrupt nature will weigh on him. This is what it's talking about. This is a beautiful design law passage. And then what is the wrath of God will be appeased? Well, or the justice of God will be satisfied. What is justice? Justice is doing what's right. Defined by what? That's right. What, what defines what's right is the law. What law? The law of love, truth, and liberty. Can God force people against their will to be saved? No. No. So what's the only loving action God can take for those who won't accept his healing and restoration? Let them go. And that's God's wrath. He does the right thing or the just thing. And the wrath of God, he lets them go. He abandons them. He surrenders them to reap what they've chosen. It's the only thing he can do. And thus God's justice is satisfied. His wrath is appeased. It's, it's the outworking of the of design law. Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Their minds became dark and depraved and, and futile. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up. Gave them up to reap and what they have sown. And thus Galatians 6. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. When God stops using power to hold at bay what their choices cause, and that's what's being described here. On this day, God stops holding at bay the results of what they've chosen. And thus, and that is the right and just thing. He sets them free to experience what they have chosen for themselves. It's beautiful design law, but it takes a little maturity to actually see it and not uh, draw the wrong conclusion. Please explain like you're talking to a fifth grader. <laughs> a fifth grader trying to understand how God is fair. What design law was de- what design law was deviated from in the Garden of Eden? If there was no poison in the tree and God does not set arbitrary tests of obedience, how is it just that an eventuality as harsh as our current reality could reasonably stem from the single choice of a naive brand spanking new being. So first, I will give an explanation, but I want to tell you this explanation is given in our God is Love book, our God is Love children's book. It explains it there on a children's level very well, and children understand it. 
So I would encourage you, if you haven't received a copy or read it, I believe, I'm not sure if it's on, online to read, but you can certainly email us at request this week and, and we'll, we'll send you a copy. But that would be a place to get a really nice, great, uh, of the entire plan of salvation, a great controversy and what happened and how it's fair. But you can explain this to, to kids very, very simply uh, with them and a friend. And what happens if at school one of your friends tells a lie about you that's not true, but one of your other friends believes the lie or they tell you a lie? What happens when lies are believed? Kids understand if you believe a lie, it changes you. And you can give the example that's appropriate to their level. And when lies are believed, love is broken, trust is broken, and you become afraid. If you believe the lie that your friend at school stole your cookies and, uh, and the lie that your friend is, is telling bad things about you, then you don't trust that friend. You, you, you are afraid of that friend. You're afraid that friend's gonna hurt you. Kids get that. And when they believe lies about God, then they were changed from beings who loved and trusted to beings who were afraid and, and started watching out for themselves. And, and, and that's immediately what you see. They started acting in self-interest instead of love because they believed lies and they were now afraid. And that's what fear causes people to do. It's very simple. Another Eden question possibly the same fifth grader. What if instead of the tree of knowledge, could God place the pool of comprehension, set it up in an elevation elevation with a staircase leading up to where there was no way they could accidentally fall into it. And he commanded them of the day of all the other pools, you can drink and swim. But of this pool, you must neither swim nor drink. Uh, in your understanding, could God have set this choice up? Of course, absolutely. It was nothing about that. The tree was just a simple means whereby they could face the question of who they would love and trust. That's all it was. There was nothing magical. The fruit was not harmful. It was not, it was not deadly. What was deadly was believing the lies that broke the circle of love and trust that changed them from love and loyalty to fear and selfishness. Uh, the tree was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was where they had the not, where they could, they could gain the knowledge of either good or evil. It was their choice what knowledge. And, and, and we're not talking, it wasn't the tree of didactic instruction. It was the tree of experiential knowledge. See, no, having a lecture on how to swim and, and learning the physical mechanics of swimming in a, in a diagram is not the same thing as knowing how to swim. This was where they would know in their being by the choice they would make. And God wanted them to mature and develop by the exercise of their capacities, mature, godly, righteous character, which they had the ability in their sinless state to do. In order to do that in the context of this war, they had to be faced with the questions, the allegations, and then they had to think through, do I believe what the serpent is saying or do I believe all the evidence that God has given? I have a whole planet that's mine. I have all the trees in the entire world that are mine. One tree that I've been asked not to drink. Or, or do I believe that this one tree and this, 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 this request not to partake, do I believe the lies that I'm being kept down in some way? Do I know God? Do I spend time with him? Have I experienced him? They had to choose. And if they would have chosen and God wanted them to go there and he wanted them to choose to know good, to know loyalty, to know faithfulness, to know love, to know trust. And had they rejected the lies, they would have known in their character righteousness and they would have developed into righteous beings that could not be shaken. But instead, they chose to believe the lie and they knew 
fear. They knew selfishness. They knew shame. They knew guilt. And they knew all the pain of sin. They knew evil. God never wanted them to know evil. They had the choice to know one or the other. And that's why he put it there, because he wanted them to grow and to know. And the only way they can know in character, know in experience, God can create sinless beings. He cannot create character. Character has to be chosen and developed. And so he put that tree there. It could have been a pool, certainly. That little thing certainly could have done that, absolutely. And it would have been the same choice. What are you going to choose to know? The true, true, the, the pool of experience of good and evil. What are you going to experience at this pool, good or evil? Why did Jesus tell the man whom he healed from leprosy in Matthew chapter 8 not to tell anyone? Because at the time of his ministry, he knew that if he told people, uh, first off, there's two reasons. And I, I wrote, a, I think I wrote a blog on this. So I'll tell you to go to our website, com. type in leprosy, and I think you're going to find a blog that actually expands this. But I believe there are two reasons. One the, the uh, religious leaders are already biased against Jesus. In order for a leper to be returned to full fellowship and full rights and access to the community, to live with his family again, be able to come to temple, to do all the things in the marketplace, he had to be declared or given a verdict of clean by the priest. If he went to the priest declaring that Jesus healed him, it's very possible the biases of them might have declared him still unclean. Not that he was, but that's the difference between a declaration and, and, and actual reality. So he said, keep it quiet so that you will not bias the priest and let him declare you to be clean. That's the first reason. So you can return to full fellowship. Second reason was that Jesus understood that his ministry would be compromised. He would be mobbed by people anywhere he went, and he would be less capable of, of working freely. And he would have turned the religious leaders against him more quickly, which happened. And he had to actually leave um, where he was working and moved to another region for a period of time because of this. And so two reasons, restricting his work and also biasing the person's ability to return. Next question, if <clears throat> there are three persons in the Godhead, which by the way, I was raised with that belief, uh, I since have studied, prayed and learned that the Holy Spirit is getting the glory instead of Jesus. Is that Satan's deception? We may want to change our paradigm about the Trinity. Paul, in all his epistles, states grace and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Why is the Holy Spirit not mentioned? Jesus states in John 17 that I am the Father, uh, I am in the, I am in the Father and the Father in you. His, his, Jesus Spirit with it, his, Jesus Spirit is with us. So this is a argument based on lack of evidence, not actual evidence. If something isn't stated, doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, and I already gave you, and I turned download the notes, and I already give you multiple texts in Scripture where the Holy Spirit is mentioned and referred to in context of the Father and the Son, by Jesus the Son, as an individuality, with his own identity, so forth. So just because you can find some places in Scripture that happen not to mention the Holy Spirit, you can find some places in Scripture that don't mention the Father or don't mention Jesus. Uh, just because you can have some places that mention one and not the other, you don't say, well, only the Father is mentioned in this text, therefore there must not be a son. Well, no, you've got other texts that mention the son. You have to take the Bible as a whole. So this, is a, this argument has no weight at all with the question of 
whether there's a Holy Spirit or not. Regarding the Holy Spirit getting the glory, this is just the opposite. The Holy Spirit never seeks glory for himself. Jesus also never sought glory for himself. Jesus always sought to glorify the Father. He's always uplifting the Father and never uplifting himself. And the Holy Spirit is always coming to uplift the Son. The, Jesus himself said, when the counselor comes, he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will take what is mine and make it known to you. So the Holy Spirit is doing the work of uplifting Jesus. So this whole argument actually is based on misunderstanding, um, limited evidence from Scripture, and a false premise. So I reject it. Thank you very much for the Bible study. Does this person who was prevented from any godly light in the basement miss heaven because of this abusive person? Would that allow, would God allow that? So it depends. The argument of that quote was if a per, if an individual is so abused by another individual that the individual who's being abused never has any individuality, never has a mind, never has a soul, never has the capacity to think, never has any truth, never is nothing functionally but a brute beast, a creature of instinct. At, even if it's at the hands of a third party, there is no individuality for that person to surrender to Jesus for cleansing. You have to have an individuality to surrender to Jesus to be saved. And so she's suggesting that some biological beings, human beings, can be have their individuality so abused that it never actually develops an identity to actually go to Jesus in their own self. They're nothing but a creature. That's what's being described here. It's a very difficult, again, passage. And I, and I wouldn't have actually brought it up, but the person asked, so we gave an answer. I wouldn't go around sharing that with people because a lot of people are not really mature enough but to understand, and you have to understand design law. Yes, God would save them if he could, but then God would be creating an individuality and identity where one doesn't exist. And that would be like creating a new being, like creating someone in Eden. And creating someone in Eden is, is, is not part of this creation. God can create new intelligences anytime. But once that new intelligence is created, that new intelligence then has to think these things through for themselves and develop their own character and come to their own conclusions. And so what's saying here is these people have no individuality and they've never made any choices to align or surrender to Christ for cleansing and healing. Because there's no individuality to be cleansed. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment along these lines, but ultimately it is about you. And we pray that we can see you more fully and share you more effectively, and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.